I'll invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at verses 15 to 20 today, but we're going to begin reading in verse 13. Matthew chapter 7, beginning in verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. <clears throat> well, last Sunday, uh, Floyd very kindly uh, stepped in to uh, preach verses 13 and 14 and start us into this last major section of the Sermon on the Mount. And in this section, we find multiple admonitions and warnings that have to do with how a person responds to the Lord Jesus. Of course, last time, verse 13 and 14, we saw and we just read again that Jesus himself is the gate to eternal life. He is the way we enter into it. We enter in by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he talks about the path also. So the gate is narrow. The path also is narrow or constricted. It's translated as hard in the ESV. And that path is the pathway of discipleship that he has laid out for us in his word and that he has been discussing and talking about throughout this Sermon on the Mount. It is a narrow and constricted, difficult path. <clears throat> we are beset on this pathway by various types of trials and tribulations, both internal ones and also external ones as well. But at the end of that path for the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is indeed life, entrance into the consummated kingdom of Christ that we are awaiting. It is welcome into glory. And then now as we come to verses 15 to 20, we are warned here about an obstacle. An obstacle to entering that narrow gate. We're warned of a hindrance to walking that narrow path. And that obstacle, that hindrance, is the presence of false prophets, what Jesus calls false prophets. False prophets, as used here, are those who claim to be speaking for God, but who are actually leading people into destruction. They are those who, if followed, would lead one out of the narrow way, away from the narrow gate, and would put one on that broad path that ends in destruction. Again, that was looked at last time. False prophets are those teaching soul-destroying heresy while claiming to be representatives of the Lord. If you think about the broad gate and the broad path that leads to destruction, there's, there's maybe endless ways that a person can walk that path and end up under God's judgment in the end. This is one of those ways, the presence of false prophets and following after them. But it is one of the more insidious ways because it's not just, you know, if somebody comes along and they just say there's no, you know, God is not real, the Bible is not true. Uh, for many of us, we're just immediately going to recognize this is not, you know, they're the ones who are not correct and we're not going to be persuaded. But when someone comes along claiming to be speaking for the Lord, this can become a, particular, a particularly difficult danger for God's people. In the Old Testament, false prophets were a, a regular problem. And oftentimes, their message was that everything is fine. That is a very common message of false prophets. In Jeremiah, we read the prophets were preaching peace, peace, when there was no peace. Jeremiah, a true prophet, was preaching repentance, turned back to the Lord, was condemning them for their wicked ways and 
preaching God's righteousness and calling the people of Israel to repent. And the false prophets were saying, no, 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 not necessary. Everything's good. In Ezekiel chapter 22, it says, the princes of Israel were wicked men and her prophets have smeared whitewash for them, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord has not spoken. So when Ezekiel was condemning these false prophets, smearing whitewash for all these wicked leaders of Israel, right, saying the, this is what the Lord says when the Lord had never actually said those things. They're covering for man's wickedness. This was a problem in the Old Testament, but the presence of Jesus' warning here makes very clear to us that it's not simply an Old Testament problem. Jesus makes it plain here that walking the narrow path involves being on guard against false teachers who would, if they could, lead you and others out of the path and away from the narrow gate, all in the name of the Lord. So the first thing I want to draw your attention to as we consider these verses, the first point of the outline is that the church must be in a continual state of guardedness against false prophets. The church must be in a continual state of guardedness against false prophets. Now this guardedness, this watchfulness, it is both an individual matter. It is something that every believer is called to do. We are called to beware and to be careful. Every one of us has responsibility in this matter. And it is also a corporate one. It is also something we do together as a church. It is something that elders are called likewise to be watchful of. Now, when I say that we are to be in a constant state of guardedness, I do not mean that we are to become paranoid or that we're to be worried or that we're to be panicky or frantic about this, uh, as if there's a false teacher behind every tree. What I mean is that we are to be alert. We are to be vigilant, watchful, aware of the potential danger and the fact that it is a real danger that Jesus warns us of. Think of all the things that he could say to us now. All the things that Matthew could have recorded for us that came out of Jesus' mouth. And here he is, beware false teachers, he says. This is not a boogeyman that is some sort of uh, scary thing that doesn't really exist. Uh, this really is an enemy to the church. This really is a threat that Jesus warns us of. We're to be on guard. We're to be ready to recognize false prophets and to ward them off as necessary. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, beware of false prophets. Be on guard against them. This is an interesting warning given Christ's command at the start of chapter 7 to not judge other people. Do not judge lest you be judged. Again, as we noted back when we were in verses 1 and 2, Clearly, that cannot mean we are never to make a judgment call. Right? Obviously, if we are to beware of false teachers, we need to be making judgments about the teaching that we hear. We need to be on guard and we need to be unafraid when it is a false prophet to label that person as a false prophet. That is a form of judgment. And yet, as we think about this in light of verses 1 and 2 that talks about moderation and carefulness in our judgment as we think about these verses in light of verse 12 which speaks of the golden rule i think those verses ought to caution us against being overly critical in our evaluation of every teacher <clears throat> i think this raises the question then of when it is that wrong teaching becomes the kind of becomes the type of error that jesus is warning us about here now, obviously, any error is error. We should be on guard against that. We want to believe only what is true. We want to affirm only that which is correct and in accordance with Scripture. We ought to be prepared to receive correction if we are in any sort of error in our belief or in our teaching. And yet, not all error is on the exact same level. I think this is clear within the scripture itself. I think, for example, of Apollos in Acts chapter 18. He was teaching. He was powerfully refuting Jews, we are told. And yet, 
he had some things that were not quite right. He was taken aside. He was offered correction such that at the end of it, when he proclaimed the way of Christ, he proclaimed it more accurately, we're told, in verse 26 of Acts 18. So he, he needed to grow in his understanding that he might correct some of his errors and, and, and preach and teach more accurately than before. So Apollos was, was not a false prophet in the sense that Jesus is speaking here. Not all errors are matters of which we ought to just immediately separate and brand somebody a false prophet. This is not talking about, say, the young preacher who's still ironing out some of his theology and tightening up some of his presentation. Again, what I would suggest that what Jesus is referring to here are those errors that would corrupt the true gospel and lead people away from it or would keep people from it. That is to say, it is one who teaches some form of heresy. Now, heresy... Is another one of those words that sometimes can be thrown about. Some people are terrified and would never use it. Other people use it for everything. Uh, Robert Godfrey says this. He says, classically, the word heresy was used to describe those theological errors so serious that it would deprive one of salvation. So it is used of errors so serious it would deprive one of salvation. And I think that's what Jesus is talking about here. Beware of false prophets, these who would teach heresy. There are a number of different ways a person can do this. A person can teach heresy. They can just come in and clearly corrupt the gospel message itself. They could come in with a corrupt doctrine of God. Or maybe they might seem to get the gospel right. They speak of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, and of forgiveness and believing in Him. But... They might say, now that you are forgiven, you can do whatever you want because your soul is saved. That is error that has entered into the church. And yet when we look at Scripture, Paul says that it's impossible in Romans chapter 6. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? If somebody teaches that, then their gospel is indeed corrupted. Their understanding of faith and the fruit of faith is wrong. It's heresy. There's a number of ways that a person can teach it. I think this is what Jesus is talking about here. I think the fact that he calls them false prophets, also the fact that he calls them wolves. He's going to describe them as actually in their true character, these teachers are wolves. So their error, again, must be heresy of some kind. The thing that if believed leaves one on the broad path. Again, the context, verses 13 and 14, is the call to enter by the narrow gate and walk and follow by the narrow, constricted, difficult path. The false prophets are those who would come along and move you away from that. They would point you away from the narrow gate, would lead people out of that narrow path. <clears throat> we find these types of warnings all over the New Testament. Another such place is in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. There, Paul, remember, he's on his way back to Jerusalem, but he stops and he gathers with the Ephesian elders and he says this. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Walking the narrow path involves being on guard against false teachers who would lead you out of the way if possible and draw away those seeking entry. And whenever we think of these warnings, we obviously think about and, and, and wonder often we go to God's sovereignty in all of this. And of course, we affirm that God is sovereign. He is sovereign to save 
all those whom he has elected. We also know that God uses means to accomplish his purposes. And one of the means he gives us to help us persevere to the end is commands like this one to beware of false teachers, to be on guard. So we we don't neglect the Lord's commands under some presumption about God's sovereignty. Say, well, he's sovereign to save and to keep those that he saves, and so therefore I don't really have to pay attention to any of this. We do not neglect the Lord's warnings and commands under presumption about God's sovereignty. In fact, we're going to see more about the danger of presumption next week when we get into uh, verse 21 and following. We are called to beware of false prophets who would seek to snatch people away. There are many people who do not have a place in their Christianity, a place in their theology for this kind of conflict, for this kind of watchfulness, for being aware of false prophets. But again, I remind you, Jesus has told us the way is hard. Reminded of Paul who told others that through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. That, that warning after he had been stoned. And with this difficult way and along this difficult path comes conflict with wolves. Conflict with false teachers. As we read from 2 Timothy, those who are imposters, who go about deceiving. We're to beware of them to be aware of their presence and to be watchful for their entry into our midst, into our families, into our church, into our own lives. The reality is there are always going to be new battles to face along these lines. A faithfulness during the battles of 10 years ago is good, but it isn't a reason for us to sit back in self-satisfaction. There are going to be continual battles and conflicts as long as the Lord tarries, as long as we live out our days. And so we are to remain diligent and be ever watchful. Discernment is to become part of our task. And to that end, we must grow in our powers of discernment, all of us. Hebrews has this criticism of believers in Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. He has been addressing a particular topic and he says this, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. So he wants to talk about this and it's difficult. It's not a simple matter. But he's, he knows that his hearers have become dull of hearing. They're not trying hard to pay attention. They're dull in this matter. For though by this time, he says, you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Discernment is most certainly... A gift. There are some who are gifted in this area, but clearly discernment is an expectation of every believer in the New Testament. Hebrews 5 doesn't single out, you know, the gifted people with discernment. He's talking to believers in general. That all believers are to grow in those powers of discernment by the constant exercise of discernment, by exercising those discernment muscles, so to speak. This is an important part of our being aware and being guarded against false prophets. So that's the first area. We are to, to be in a continual state of guardedness against false teaching and false teachers. Secondly, the church must know the character and strategy of our enemy. The church must know the character and strategy of our enemy. Verse 15 again says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Jesus reveals the external character of these men and their internal character. 
Externally, what do they look like? Well, they're coming to you in sheep's clothing. They look like Christians. That's what he's saying. They look like they belong. At first glance, and maybe even after a long glance, they look like believers. They sound like believers. Yet internally, their true character, they are ravenous wolves. He doesn't just say they're wolves. He calls them ravenous wolves. When I say that we need to know the character and the strategy of our enemy, I don't just mean the false prophets themselves. The false prophets are merely tools of our ultimate enemy, the devil. And they operate in like manner to him. Listen to what 2 Corinthians 11 says. Paul says this, he says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, is he surprised? No, he's not. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. The strategy of Satan and his servants is to disguise themselves as angels of light, as servants of righteousness, as Christians, as sheep. This reality is truly disturbing. This is a a very clever and insidious strategy of our enemy. In all of Jesus' talk about loving our neighbor and even loving our enemies, Jesus' talk about the golden rule, he is not teaching us to be naive about the true character of sinful man. To be naive, to go through a world with our head in the sand, unaware of our enemy, of Satan and his plans and his strategies. When he talks about loving other people, Loving enemies, golden rule. He's not saying give everyone a pass who simply comes in my name and speaks in my name. And yet this is the default of so many people who profess to be Christians. Well, you know, the man says he's a Christian. He spent his whole life teaching about Christianity. He seems like a nice guy. Sure, I don't maybe agree with everything, but who am I to make a judgment? I remember once in in seminary talking to a guy who had a sister, he was a student, and he had a younger sister who was taken in by, caught up in the ministry of a false teacher, a false prophet. And truly this, this man was that. His doctrine of God was a total disaster among other things. And this student was concerned for his sister and he was telling me about things and he could, I was glad he could see the errors. He seemed to see it very clearly. But then at the end he says, but you know, He loves Jesus too. Speaking of the false prophet, you know, he loves Jesus too. And I just thought, I just stood there completely baffled and stunned. I thought, just, man, just make the connection. Just take it that next step. He is a false teacher. Warn your sister and try and drag her out of that mess. But he could see the errors, but he just wouldn't say it. Well, you know, he loves Jesus too. We cannot be that naive. We just can't afford to be. Or to beware of false prophets. We must take this to heart. False prophets do not come with horns on their head and red eyes. They don't have evil sounding voices. Well, they might, but they don't necessarily have evil sounding voices. That just immediately tip us off. We can't just assume, well, I would obviously know. They come in sheep's clothing. We must not, again, be that naive or we will leave those within our care, our children, loved ones, our brothers and sisters around us, our church, as sitting ducks to the designs of Satan. Again, our enemy is not just flesh and blood. We understand this. This means, among other things, that we must test what we hear being taught in Christ's name. Whether that's here, whether that's on a podcast, in books we read, wherever it might be. 
We need to be those who test what we hear in Christ's name. This also means that none of our favorite teachers should be off limits if another desires to test them or comes with a concern. Do not make idols of men or women. It is amazing how many will not hear of any challenge to their guy. If those that you look up to and listen to are indeed sound, they will withstand the test. They will withstand the criticism or concern. This also means that in our church, any of us who would teach must be willing to be examined, must be happy to be examined, happy to be tested, welcoming of critique, It is good and healthy to have a church full of that Berean spirit where we examine the scriptures to see if these things are so. <clears throat> Not all heresy comes to us in obvious forms. Again, Satan is too clever for that. And so it is packaged nicely in deceptive ways. As plausible arguments, Colossians 2 4 says, or fine sounding arguments. The bad fruit of false prophets, which we'll get to in a moment, it's more than just the grossest kinds of errors and behaviors. Again, they come to us in sheep's clothing. So I'm, re I'm reminded of a quote that is attributed to Spurgeon. I looked and couldn't find the exact source of it, where he said it. But it's to the effect that discernment is not just knowing the difference between right and wrong, but knowing the difference between right and almost right. right just driving home that it, it takes care, it takes growing, it can be difficult uh, to, to, to learn and to grow in our powers of discernment. And yet we can't afford to not. So we must know the character and strategy of our enemy. Thirdly, the church must know how to test teachers. The church must know how to test teachers. Jesus tells us here how we can find them out. Verse 16. You will recognize them by their fruits. This is the key line in these verses that's repeated and emphasized again in verse 20. And in between there, he illustrates this reality that we will know them by their fruits. He asks, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or fig, figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Ultimately, a wolf cannot conceal his true identity, but will manifest it. Just as the condition of the fruit on the tree, whether it's good or bad, ultimately reveals the status of the tree, whether it's healthy, whether it's good or bad tree, so too the fruit of a false prophet will eventually reveal his true condition. And we're told to examine that fruit. Again, not just wait for it to be the worst kind of most obvious bad fruit, but to test it. This illustration about trees and fruit are used, this is used in a number of places in the New Testament and applied to believers in general. How can we know if one is a believer? By their fruit. Luke 6 is one example. But here it is specifically used of the false prophets. Now when we think of fruit, what are we talking about when we can know somebody by their fruit? We often think of one's ethics. We think of their actions, their demeanor. A Christian and a true teacher of the Lord is one who bears fruit in keeping with repentance, as uh, John the Baptist worded it. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 9 to 15, we see this very test put to the false prophets in Jeremiah's day. Verse 11, he says, Both prophet and priest are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. 
But in the prophets of Jerusalem, I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that no one turns from his evil. All of them have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. And so the actions of those prophets in Jeremiah's day, they were themselves ungodly. Right? Their actions revealed themselves to be false prophets. Before we have heard even exactly what their message is, given their lifestyle, we know they're not truly from the Lord. Their unrepentant sin, their lying, their adulteries, and so on. And revealed them for who they really were. But we should not limit fruit to just one's life and character. It also includes one's teaching. The teaching itself. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, we see a theological test for prophets. It says there, If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or a wonder, and the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, and if he says, Let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear Him and keep His commandments and obey His voice and you shall serve Him and hold fast to Him. And he goes on to say that prophet or dreamer of dreams is false and should actually be put to death for teaching rebellion. The test there was a theological test. The sign that they had said, the prediction they had made came to pass. Well, obviously this man is from God. Well, not once he starts introducing false worship to you. That's what this is saying. It's a theological test. When we think of Old Testament tests of false prophets, often people will jump to Deuteronomy chapter 18, in which a test is given that if a prophet makes a prediction that doesn't come to pass, then you know that that is a false prophet. But here in Deuteronomy 13, in the text I just read, Israel is told, even if it does come to pass, if he then leads you astray from the teaching of Scripture, from the actual teaching of the Lord, to worship other gods in addition to the Lord, then he was to be put to death. He was not to be followed. In 1 John, we also find the theological test for false teachers. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. John says there to test the spirits. He's talking about testing the spirit of those teachers. What, what is really driving what these teachers are saying? Are they driven by the spirit of God within them and proclaiming the truth? Or are they driven by the spirit of Antichrist and preaching doctrines of demons? And the test he gives is seeing if they confess that Jesus came in the flesh. The reason John says that is that the main heresy that he is combating there at that time is an early type of Gnosticism that included a teaching known as docetism that Jesus' body was not a real physical body. It just had the appearance of being real and physical. It is just a celestial body. It had the appearance of being real, but it was not really physical and real. And of course, if that was the case, can you see how this would destroy the gospel? If Jesus is not literally a man, he did not literally die and literally rise from the dead in that humanity, then of course we have not literally had satisfaction for our sins made. There is no gospel at that point. And so he's telling them, since this is the error that's going around, give them this test. This is the theological test doesn't matter how nice they are, how big their smile is when they show up at your door. Test their theology on this. And that's part of examining the fruit. So 
So we examine the teaching and the lives of teachers to tell whether they are true or false. Obviously, we understand that we cannot see the heart absolutely. But Jesus does tell us here that we are to do this. We are to examine fruits that we might know them, that we might sniff out false prophets. Jesus is telling us that this fruit does reflect the inner condition. There is a direct link. And so again, while a a heretic might do nothing but smile, while they might make for a pleasant neighbor, while they might say a lot of true things that you might even find helpful, if he is indeed or she a wolf, then he is to be treated as such. I do not think that the description here of a wolf in sheep's clothing means that they are necessarily insincere. They necessarily know full well what they're doing. I think there are people who know full well they're taking advantage of Christians. But I think there are others who sincerely believe what they're saying to be true, but is in fact dead wrong. They're sincere in their error. Nevertheless, if they are indeed heretics, they're to be treated as wolves. They're doing the work of the enemy. And notice... In verse 19, that note of judgment, that they're fit for the fire. And his reassurance is almost everywhere in the New Testament we find talk of false prophets, this reminder that their end will come as they deserve, that none of this escapes Christ's notice. Now, just as we bring this kind of in the time remaining, I want to apply what we're looking at here uh, to a a current situation. There there is a debate right now, which you may or may not be aware of, of a particular teacher that is influential and well-known by the name of Doug Wilson. And the debate is over whether or not this man is a false teacher. And I'm... we don't have time right now to, to bring up all that you know there is to do with this. But because he is very influential, I do want to just mention it here now. <clears throat> and essentially, my advice to you with regard to him would, is to avoid him. Is to avoid him. And I just really briefly want to tell you why. There are a number of issues that have been pointed out over the years, but ultimately, my concern would come down to the core of the gospel message itself, in which this distinction between God's law and the gospel is blurred, and the distinction between faith and faithfulness, or faith and obedience, is likewise blurred, and they're merged together. This is what some of the recent uproar uh, has, has had to do with. And I, I realize as I say this, that some here, you have no idea who it is I'm even talking about, or maybe you've heard the name, you have no idea any of this is going on. Uh, and yet, I know also some of you know full well exactly what's going on. And, and some of us have read things from, from Doug Wilson and from others in his circles that are, are, have been helpful to us. Uh, he has said many things that, that are true and that are helpful. Many of his criticisms of our world are on the money. And, and you see that, you think, wow, that's, that's helpful or good. But again, the recent uproar has concerned this definition of faith. He is one who will affirm justification by faith alone, which is good. We like that. That sounds right. But it's the definition of faith that he holds that becomes so problematic because it confuses faith with obedience. When the Bible speaks of being justified by faith, it means that we are justified and given a right standing with God by faith alone apart from works. That is apart from anything you do, apart from any of your obedience. One is justified before God, simply by faith, by believing in Christ Jesus. 
before you've done any, any act of obedience. This is why confessions like the 1689 Confession, the Westminster Confession, many others, they use passive language to speak of faith. Speaking of it as, when it comes to justification, as receiving and resting on Christ and on His righteousness. It's belief. This kind of passive language is important because it's upholding the fact that salvation is a gift of God's grace and the instrument by which we receive it is not our activity and our obedience and our doing, but it is passive. It is just simply receiving this gift of salvation. This is what we mean when we say we are justified by grace through faith. Faith is this instrument by which we simply receive this gift of God and His grace. It is a passive act, if you will. So we've had important distinction between faith and then faithfulness or obedience. And obviously we affirm that saving faith will go on to produce good works. Saving faith is accompanied by other saving graces. It's no dead faith. But those works must be distinguished from faith. Faith being that passive reception of God's gracious gift of salvation. So we are justified, not by our obedience, but by Christ's righteous works imputed to us. His obedience, His death on the cross by which He satisfied God's wrath for our sins. His righteousness imputed to us while our sins were imputed to Him and He satisfied God's justice. This exchange that takes place. And so when people like Wilson, and there are others, when they start defining justifying faith as obedient faith, or faithfulness, or submissive faith, we have a clear problem. You can say we're justified by faith alone, but if your definition of faith is faithful obedience, then you're saying you're justified by faithful obedience alone. I trust you, I hope you see the problem with that. The instrument of our justification now includes and involves our works. That's the main issue. That's the main issue I would have. There's other things I think we could point to. But that's the main one. And it's not just him doing it. There are a number of people out there. There are another, a number of people connected to the Ezra Institute. Some of you will be familiar with the Ezra Institute. That's here in Canada. It's been very influential. They've said a lot of good and helpful things about our, the crazy world we live in. Yet there are folks connected to them. There's, again, I know some, some folks listen to that podcast and have found it helpful at times. Uh, there was an interview on there with a man named Andrew Sandlin, who's a fellow. He teaches with that Ezra Institute. In the interview, he says, faith is an act of obedience. Right? He, again, destroys the law-gospel distinction and equates faith with obedience. We're justified by faith, which is obedience, and we continue to have to remain faithfully obedient. So again, it turns us back in on ourselves, looking to ourselves. I, I hope in time, over coming weeks, to, to, a, to maybe go through this in more, more detail, to maybe have opportunity to do that, perhaps even preach more on the matter of justification by grace through faith. This is the article that, for example, Martin Luther said, this is the article of the church that, by which the church either stands or falls. If, if we lose this, we have nothing left. We roll it up. And so there's no place, even whether someone's just confused and inconsistent in their language, and that's some of the trouble with men like Wilson and others. They say one thing over here that sounds fine and great, and then over here they say something that sounds really awful, and they never take that back. And then they continue to try to say they're just saying whatever historic Reformed Christians have ever said, but then they're 
criticizing what Reformed Christians have said and, and what confessions say and altering it. Uh, it it's, it's a great confusing mess, which is why I, I want to bring this up now and just say my advice to you would be to just walk away. There's plenty of good teaching out there that you don't need that influence. And it will come out downstream. And it is sometimes difficult to spot. And again, if, if you have questions about this, you, you want to know more, again, you don't just have to take my word for it. Uh, I'd be happy to show you examples of, of what I mean uh, when, when I say these things. Again, we need to be aware of false teaching on every side. On every side of us. Those with whom we have a ton of political agreement and those with whom we would maybe have zero political agreement, whatever it might be. We can't join politically at the, at, the, at the expense of the gospel. Or we downplay those kinds of errors or ignore them altogether. Now again, as we've seen, I don't think we should apply this test of false teachers, test of teaching in a censorious and overly harsh manner which would identify any and every sin or any and every little error as warranting a teacher the fires of hell. But we must carefully examine teaching. And when the error is such that it corrupts the faith, leading people out of the way or barring access to the gate, then we are to deal with such people as wolves. So again, we are called to the narrow gate, to enter by the narrow gate. We are called to walk the difficult path there is salvation in Christ alone. It is received by faith alone, not of works, not of any of your works. We receive the gift of salvation. We rest in what Christ has accomplished. And the path of the Christian involves trials and difficulties, many temptations to abandon the faith. One of the difficulties we face is, as Jesus tells us here, the presence of false teachers. And so we are to be on guard and attentive, aware of our enemies' plans and strategies to infiltrate the church. And we must test teachers. And so let us do that. Let us seek to be motivated by zeal for the truth, by zeal for the glory of Christ, for zeal for the glory of our one true God, and his gospel of free grace. That by God's mercy and with his help, we might continue down this narrow, constricted path, looking ahead and awaiting the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this day again. We thank you and praise you for the, the good news of the gospel. That though we are sinners, though we are your enemies, Christ died for us. That your forgiveness is full and free to those who do nothing and can do nothing but simply believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we would truly rest in what Christ has accomplished. Father, I pray that this is a message that would be guarded by your people all over. Father, that we would hold it forth to our world. Forgive us, Father, where we are where we have failed to do that, where we have been maybe ashamed or embarrassed, where we have been maybe distracted by other things, even good things. Father, we pray that your churches all over this country would hold firm to the truth of your word, hold firm to the truth of the gospel. 
Father, we pray that you'd give us grace here to obey the words that we have heard this morning, to beware of false prophets, to understand the strategy of our, the enemy of our souls and of those that he uses to accomplish his purposes, his desires. Father, that we would not be naive, that we would work to train our powers of discernment. Father, help us by your grace. Preserve us in unity. A unity that is rooted in the truth. Father, I pray that you would preserve our children. All of, our, all of us here. From heresies. Father, I pray that you would enable us and strengthen us and help us to run the race well to strive and push forward toward the coming of our Lord, to live in light of that day with anticipation and hopefulness and gladness. Father, lift up our heads. May we not be discouraged, for we do know that you have given us your word, you have given us one another, you have gifted your church and your people. You've given us your spirit that we might endure and persevere. Father, we thank you so much for your grace and your kindness. And bless us as we go from here, as we continue to think about these things, and to, as we be on alert. Help us to be those who grow in our ability to obey you, Father, that we would not be eager to be harsh with other people, and yet that we would also be on our guard. Father, help us to balance that and to walk that with joy. Father, we thank you again for your goodness. We pray all of these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.